And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. In this week's newsletter, uh, I have included a couple of links to articles by Ben Carlson of uh, A Wealth of Common Sense. He is one of my favorite uh, bloggers, and uh, this particular article, and by the way, the one great new article at the end has a link to another really good article from the past, but these articles are about backtesting and the, the implications of looking at the past and drawing conclusions about what is likely to happen and then struggling with the reality of things when they don't look like what you thought they were going to be. The first article is entitled, Back Tests Are Unemotional, Humans Are Not. The reason this particular topic, and I think Ben does a great job of, 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 of disclosing the problems of backtesting, but the reason I'm focusing on this is because in a few weeks, we are going to be releasing the updated tables that we uh, that we update every year, the fine-tuning your asset allocation, the ultimate buy-and-hold strategy, the fixed contributions, the fixed distributions, the variable distributions, all of these tables, looking in these particular cases back to 1970, uh, show you what happened from 1970 through... Uh, 2022. And of course, the question is, uh, for all of us, as we're looking for some sort of guidance, how meaningful is that period of time? Uh, How meaningful is the sequence of events? We know we had uh, three huge declines of more than 50% back in the 73-74 and then again in 2000 through 2002 and 2007, late 2007 through early 2009. So what can we make of the back test? I think there's a tendency when you see the back test to go to the bottom line to see how it did. And, 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 it, and by the way, if you know the sequence of returns Uh, are not going to be the same, it's almost an excuse not to dig into that sequence to see what lessons there might be. But in his article, Back Tests Are Unemotional, Humans Are Not, he says that, and it's not just the individual investor who falls prey to the siren song of short-term outperformance, Institutional investors who manage tens of millions or even billions of dollars do the same thing. Backtesting is important to all of us. As a matter of fact, looking back at even real, what we call real track records, and they aren't real because you can't buy them. It's not like somebody's going to make a guarantee today that you're going to get a 5% rate of return on your CD. Well, a bank could do that. A bank could have done that 20 or 30 years ago. 
You can't do that with, uh, with, with equities. You, you just don't know. But what he does show in this particular article is how poorly institutional investors have done chasing recent performance. So we are careful. We don't, we don't use recent performance. We use performance that goes back to 1970 in one bunch of tables. And then in other tables uh, and studies, we go back to 1928. And by the way, to be fair, somebody else has dug out all of that information. I can't say all the work the academics did, like Dr. Fama and Dr. French. I can't, I can't guarantee that the data that was extracted is, is in fact right. And there's that trust thing. And in there, Inside of all those numbers, when we look back, are literally hundreds of events. And those events get in the way of people being able to to commit themselves to the long term. Because, for well, for example, right now with the Silicon Valley bank problems, well, there are people, I'm sure, that are thinking about, hey, why not get out of this market? Just step aside, let the smoke clear here so that we can figure out how big the problem is because it looks like it's not just Silicon Valley Bank that has a problem. Lots of banks are being tapped by this particular circumstance. And the risk of a run on another bank is 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 not beyond possible. So why not just get out? Why not assume or conclude that we're looking at problems right now that are different than the problems in the past? So what, whatever reasons those markets went down or went up in the past, this doesn't have anything to do with today. But the fact is, is that when we look back the, the whether we go back to 1970 or 1928, we have wars. And future wars won't look like past wars. And we had recessions and a depression. And, and, and during that depression, we had a decline in the value of equities from 1929 to 1938. And that period of time was different, certainly in in lifestyle and environment in terms of when you looked around the world, because you had virtually the same return, in fact, worse returns from 2000 through 2009. It didn't feel like what happened to most of us anyway uh, in that 1929 through 1938 uh, major market decline. But, but actually, if you, take, if you take deflation and inflation into consideration, the return on the stock market was better from 1929 to 1938 than it was from 2000 through 2009. Now, having said that, the volatility was much worse back in the 1929 to 38 period. But the volatility was huge on the downside, and the volatility was huge on the upside. You did not have the liquidity then that we do now. 
But the end result, if we just simply looked at the whole period, was very similar. And so it still begs this question, how meaningful are past results? Well, here's one of the problems, and we struggle with it. When we look backwards, what should we consider? When we, For example, if we look at the S&P 500 from 1970 through uh, 2022, when those tables come out in a few weeks, should we trust numbers in 1970 through 1975 when there actually was not such a thing as the S&P 500 to track, although it, 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 was, it was tracked as an index? Uh, there was no live performance of that index. And to the extent that you look back at that index performance, what kind of an expense ratio should you apply to that performance? You can't, you, you can't get it for nothing. You're going to pay something in order to access that index if it did exist. And even when it did exist, if the, if, if the expenses back then were much higher than they are today, and they were, do you use the real expenses or do you use the expenses that we know today? Because in, in theory, if we're going to test the period, we conclude that we should test it as much like today as we can. Even if you look at the tax implication that comes out of, uh, out of Morningstar uh, on the returns of mutual funds, they're using the index or the tax, the tax uh, uh, rates as of now. But if we went back and, and, and tested the returns after taxes, maximum tax rates, uh, back when I came into the industry in the 60s, the marginal tax rate at the highest level was 70%, which means that, that Morningstar would have to, if they went back and tested, would have to test it with taxes at 70% highest marginal rate. Doesn't seem like that makes sense, but in theory, you struggle with those kinds of decisions. And also, we have no idea, nobody can, when we look back to 1928, uh, what the impact of higher liquidity would be. We have very high liquidity today. Back then, supposedly something like 10% of investors, retail people, the public actually had positions in the stock market going in uh, to the, uh, the big decline starting in 29. Today, it's over 50%. Today, we have the stability of people invested in index funds through thick and through thin, theoretically. And, uh, and, and that certainly would make a difference. And we have all of the technology that, uh, that, uh, that uh, allows a level of liquidity way beyond what we've had before, uh, even to the extent that the, 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 the difference between a bid and ask may have been uh, a half a percent 
back then, or even higher between uh, bid and ask in something that is not too liquid. Today, that can be pennies, pennies. Uh, so there's, it, it's so different today, but the volatility, the stories, all the things that make the market are likely to be there. But the real challenge, it really isn't in the validity of the backtesting, because I really believe that what we show in the fine-tuning tables that you'll be getting in a few weeks, we show you the worst three months, the worst six, the worst 12, the worst 36, the worst 60. We show you the worst drawdown for all of the different combinations of equities that we that we suggest, as well as combining any of those equities with different percentages of fixed income. We have gone out of our way to try to create the frightening part of the, pro- of the process, to say, look, this is what you're likely to have to live through. And of course, what we always struggle with is this difference between the the courtship, the honeymoon, and reality. And you have your own courtship with your thoughts of investing and what it could mean to you and your hopes and dreams and, and, and commitment. I'd like to think your commitment to investing for the long run is better than my commitment to the diets I've been on and my commitments to the exercise programs <laughs> that I was going to be on. But many times they are not. And it's pretty obvious to understand why people lose that commitment because because we know from all the studies that have been done that we just hate to lose money, even though we say we're willing to. And then when when you combine losing money with a general panic out there amongst investors. I think the 1987 one-day decline is is truly uh, a great lesson for investors because that one-day decline, it it wasn't the the big decline that had happened prior to that one-day decline that, uh, that, that up upset people, because the, the, the market had already gone through uh, I, I, more than a 22% decline before it got to the point where it went through a one-day 22% decline. But oh my God, if it can go down 22% in one day, if it does that several days in a row, I'm wiped out. And so the idea of staying the course is 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 way more difficult than people expect. And then to make matters, in a, in a sense, more difficult, is that when we show you, as we do in our tables, when we show you how the market did in 1987, the market, S&P 500, for the year, was up 5.2%. So you don't even, when you look at the page of numbers and you look at the worst periods that we might show you 
and you look at 87, no, it went up 5%. Well, that's half of what it's expected to go up, so that's that's okay. But it wasn't okay when, when it was falling 22% in one day. And to make it even more confusing in a way, is how portfolios in 1987 did that had a combination of the S&P 500 and other asset classes. For example, the 10 fund ultimate buy and hold strategy. Remember the 10 different equity asset classes, big, small, value growth, U.S. international, emerging markets, REITs, all of these different asset classes. Well, in 1987, that combination was up 15.8%. And if you looked at the U.S. four fund strategy, that was a little confusing because the U.S. four fund strategy was down 1.3%. Well, obviously, part of what we're looking at is that the international markets did better that year. And they did. And that's the reason we have lots of different stocks, and that's the reason we have lots of different equity asset classes. And there are other times when being in the S&P 500, when it's bad, is good. Because like in 1990, the S&P 500 was down 3.2%. But if you look at all the other eight combinations of equity asset classes, they were down 14 to 24% in 1990. Would that shake your confidence in uh, in the idea of, of putting together 10 10 different equity asset classes to protect you against the downside. Having those hurt you in that particular period, that might change your commitment to to what you think is the right thing to do. But as Ben says, knowledge of the relationship between risk and reward can also keep you out of trouble when hucksters and charlatans make unrealistic promises of returns that are too good to be true. If we can really convince you that this struggle of the market, whether you look back over the last 50-some years or you look back over the last 90-some years, that struggle is always going to be there. And people who pretend it won't are just trying to make a sale. I've mentioned before that we have almost a million opens uh, about a podcast entitled The Number One Reason to Buy Index Funds. And one of the reasons, and and I think in many ways this is the number one reason, it keeps you out of the hands or the sales pitches of people who uh, uh, sell unrealistic expectations. He does say, 
uh, Ben does, a good way to perform a back test for an average investor is to gauge the potential for loss and what the impact would be on both your finances and your emotions. When we first developed our fine-tuning tables, we called them the fright simulators. The purpose, the purpose was to, to, to have people understand that the process is at times going to probably feel frightening. And if you're not prepared for that, uh, then you're not likely to stay the course. Now, at the end of Ben's article, and at the end of virtually every article, Ben suggests some more reading. And in this case, he did. In fact, the next article he wants you to read is entitled, 10 Things You Can't Learn from a Back Test. And uh, I think it's worth just, just taking a few minutes and, and going through those. Again, I want to prepare you for the back tests that, that you're about to see in the coming weeks. One, how many back, bad back tests came before the good ones? Well, I can tell you, having back-tested market timing systems, that what the public never sees are the, are the systems that didn't work. And the reality is that most of those systems that didn't work were some sort of a market timing approach. I, I, I don't mean they didn't call it market timing, but they were pieces of historical evidence that said these are the conditions under what you get in and get out to protect yourself from major market declines. And the reality is that at least I have concluded that those kinds of strategies, while they may work for the long term, uh, put you through so many hoops that it can become very discouraging. You give up. The one hoop that we are asking and the industry asks of the buy and hold investor is to stay the course when the market goes down. But by the way, if we're any good at what we do, we encourage you to have the right amount of fixed income in the portfolio so that when it does go down, that it has protected you against a lot of the loss. And as Ben says, it's much easier to data mine the past than the future. Of course, we cannot data mine the future. Ben also mentions, number two here, data availability at the time. The fact that we now have data that wasn't available in the past changes the nature of that past data. There would have been ripple effects if investors knew then what we know now, because Hindsight changes perception. Number three, he talks about what the frictions were. And as I mentioned earlier, the frictions of taxes, commissions, moving around in the market, the impact of liquidity on the price of, of shares, all those things 
would have uh, an impact on the long-term returns. And Ben mentions the difference between the percentage returns in dollars invested, and yes, we certainly, I certainly discover that in helping people when I was an investment advisor. They might say they are willing to accept a 20% loss, and then when I point out that that 20% loss on their million-dollar account is a $200,000 loss, they decide they didn't really mean 20%. Ben is in the business. He has seen how people respond. As he, he, he comments, investors backtest investment strategies looking back almost 100 years, but then change it after a poor six-month stretch. People, many people would rather make changes to relieve that discomfort because they fear that more bad stuff is about to happen. And by the way, there's nobody in the industry that can tell you that more bad stuff isn't going to happen. And unfortunately, there really is no way that, at least that I know, where you can truly simulate the loss of your money and have it feel real. Uh, I've been told by people who have flown in, airline pilots who have flown in uh, flight simulators, that uh, as their job depends on it, uh, they have they they have the, the the emotion of it being more real time like. They know they're not going to person personally crash and die and kill people, but they do know their job depends on being able to deal with what happens in that flight simulator, and 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 so it is hard to predict that future moment of maximum pain where uh, people feel trapped and just got to get out. And Ben mentions that you have to avoid overconfidence. Uh, It's easy, he says, it's easy to feel like a world beater when you're able to put together an amazing track record in a back test. The data, smooth-looking graphs, unreal risk-adjusted return metrics, and insane performance numbers make you feel like you can conquer the markets. There was a wonderful comment once made by uh, Mark Hulbert. Mark Hulbert uh, had a firm that that tracked the performance of newsletter uh, writers, and and and. They would make wild claims. They were protected uh, by free speech. To, they could make these wild claims about how much money their, their, their strategies have, have made in the past. And, and uh, Hulbert asked people who were listening to these people who made these wild claims, do you really believe those claims? Uh, and they would say, well, no, of course not. Well then, why do you why do you use or buy their letter or or use their advice? And the answer is very telling, because if I even got half of what they claim, 
I would be happy. So those claims, maybe those claims could be 10 times what an investor should expect. And they're thinking, well, okay, if I only get five, I'd be happy. And of course, we want to believe that kind of malarkey. And uh, that, that's just human nature. So generally, I feel the tables that we provide are, are reasonable in terms of the risk that you're going to take. Uh, certainly, if you look at the tables we provide that go back to uh, 1929, uh, I suspect that uh, that wild ride uh, won't happen in the same way. But as we already, I said earlier, the 2000 through 2009 period was virtually the same as the 1929 through 38 period, just more volatility back there, back then. When you look at the S&P 500 by the decade, on the last five decades, there were two, two where the returns in one case was a negative 1% a year, and the other relatively low return was 5.8% in the 1970 to 1979 period. Now, we hope, we hope that when those kinds of periods happen again, that the combination of all of the different equity asset classes that we encourage people to use will be similar as in the past, that they might be better. And there is a reason why they were better. Part of that reason is because the prior period to that 1970 through 79 market, the S&P 500 as a, an asset class, large cap blend, had way outperformed, hugely outperformed the market. It, it, it went from a previous 9 or 10% compound rate of return for the previous 40 plus years to from 1995 to 99, a 28-plus percent compound rate of return for five years. So the fact that it reverted back to the mean was not a shock. And the others had not grown, uh, had not had those outlandish huge returns. And so they were impacted differently. Maybe it won't be like that next time. Maybe everybody will uh, will struggle for a decade. We can't know. Now, one thing we have done to try to help you is, and I say we, it's the work of Craig Apple. Craig developed our lifetime investment uh, calculator, and so when we come out with all these new tables, you'll be able to plug that information into the calculator and you'll be able to deduct, if you wish, from the returns 
that the table shows going back to 1970, you could say, what would have happened if I made 2% less per year? You'll be able to test it. You'll be able to test it if you made 3% less per year. You'll be able to test if you made a half a percent less per year because it can be controlled, adjusted to reflect lower rates of return. Another step towards helping you get as lifelike an outcome that is likely to be what you're going to go through. But again, we know the sequence of returns won't be exactly the same. But I do think you'll have lots of years the market was up, will be up over 20%, and I believe you'll have many, many opportunities to lose uh, 20%. I think that's all realistic. But if all you do is look at the bottom line and say, yes, I'd like that 10% compound rate of return, please, I think you're likely to be at risk of not staying the course. Before I close today, I just I want to make a, a brief note. I, I, I will mention it in the newsletter. But um, we have this series coming up uh, for the financial education series in cooperation with Bainbridge Community Foundation. And, uh, I will make a, a presentation. Uh, Tom Cock will make a presentation. Uh, uh, and uh, I'll, be, I'll be helping the, the people that are 20 to 40. And Tom will be talking to people who are 40 to 65, and then Christine Benz is going to do over 65, all the retirement stuff. But I got to tell you, uh, we had it planned uh, to have a conversation. Uh, with. I was going to have a conversation with Christine and uh, ask her a bunch of questions uh, and then open it up to questions uh, for the public. And what happened was I went to a conference in uh, Phoenix, the White Coat Investor Conference, I saw her keynote address, and I said, could you please make that presentation? It's about 45 minutes long. Uh, it is a, 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 I think she called it a deeper dive into uh, retirement distributions. But it has just some marvelous information that I think will help give people who are retired a really good perspective uh, about how to, to, to take the most that you can or the right amount that you should uh, from your investments in retirement. It is one of the biggest decisions we make, and then I'll have plenty of time uh, to ask her questions, and you can join in. In fact, if you have questions for Christine, um, since she'll be addressing the over 65, email them to me. Let, let me know so that I can uh, I can address the same with with Tom. If you have questions about the the forty to sixty five time frame things you should be doing, uh, let me know. Just email me Paul at paulmerriman dot com, and uh, if if it is I think of interest to uh, to the broad audience, we'll certainly uh, get that in front of Tom and get that in in front of Christine, and then for my presentation, yeah, I hope that you'll uh, you'll email me about for those that are 20 to 40 and some of the questions that you have. I'll also do another presentation 
the, in fact, the first presentation is uh, for the Bainbridge uh, uh, Senior Center. And I'm doing a piece on ESG investing, uh, environmental, uh, social, and governance uh, aspects, uh, the, the kind of the, the, the new way of looking at socially responsible funds. I'm going to talk about the pros and the cons, and so uh, you can also uh, come out to that presentation if you would like. All of these will be recorded and, and will be archived for folks to see later, but uh, we'd love to have you there uh, on, on, the, uh, on the opening night. It's always uh, fun to get your questions and have you there to, to uh, participate with us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing this information with your friends, and uh, stay tuned. We, we're working on these tables. Uh, can't, I can't wait uh, to go through the process of uh, spending the time updating people on these new tables. I think we'll find some, some good lessons that will help us uh, be better investors for the future. All the best. Thank you. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.